0: Hello, welcome back. Great to be with you again. This is, of course, MLEX's podcast. I'm your host, James Panicki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And every week we bring you the top regulatory stories of the moment. And this week is no exception. In just over 10 minutes' time, we'll cross to Washington, D.C. for the most recent moves by Congress in tackling foreign bribery and corruption. There's a suite of proposals before lawmakers at the moment... And as our correspondent Robert Thomason will tell us, these tough measures actually stand a reasonable chance of making it through the sausage machine. A reminder of what can be achieved with bipartisan support. But first up, the landmark decision by South Korea's competition regulator to fine Google for abusive dominance and for engaging in unfair trade practices against phone makers and other smart device makers in the Android operating system market. Of course, the tentative fine of 176 million US dollars imposed by the KFTC is loose change for the search giant, but that's not the point. As our correspondent Wu Yong-li has argued in her recent analysis, the penalty should be seen as a warning shot against digital platforms over what the regulator sees as harm to innovation for smart devices. And it's not just about phones. Wu Young joins me now from Seoul. So, Wu Young, firstly, what's this decision all about?
1: Hello. Uh, Google was hit with the fine and corrective orders that will stop the company forcing device makers and other uh, tech platforms like Samsung Electronics, LG, and Amazon to sign this agreement called the Anti Fragmentation Agreement. Uh, This is now called Android Compatibility Commitment because Google decided to change change the name after the European Commission launched a probe into it. Um, This is essentially a contract that Google requires uh, device makers to agree to, to make sure Android apps appear on the screen correctly on any devices that run on Android operating system. And this... Uh, comes in exchange of a group of Google apps installed on Android phones as default. But the KFTC saw this agreement is inherently uh, anti-competitive because it blocks device makers and other operating systems developers that want to make other versions of Android OS called Android Forks.
0: Now, as you rightly point out in your analysis, what the South Korean regulator took issue with is very similar to the European Commission's decision against uh, Google over Android back in 2018. But how does the Korean decision uh, differ from the European one?
1: So the European Commission and the KFTC both took issue with this AFA agreement, Um, The European Commission found that if device makers want to pre-install Google apps on their devices, including the Play Store, they have to commit not to develop or sell a single device running on Android forks. The European Commission also took issue with the tying of Google's search and browser apps with the Play Store, And that's the way they concluded that Google's dominance in the Android OS market. The KFTC decision is very similar to the EC1, but more focused on the AFA agreement and its anti-competitive aspects. So the KFTC drew a lot of examples. Um, the European Commission gathered in this probe, such as how Samsung Electronics, Dell, Lenovo, and Toshiba had no option but to enter into the AFA because signing it It was a condition to um, preloading and licensing Google apps like Play Store, Google search on smartphones and tablets. But the, the Korean decision is considered a step forward because it reflected the transition of mobile operating systems from smartphones to a range of other smart devices like smart watches, TVs, speakers, and even now connected cars.
0: Okay, so clearly uh, they're moving ahead and dealing with technological developments in a way that the earlier uh, European Commission um, outcome obviously uh, couldn't, just because that uh, technology was very much uh, nascent at the time. But tell us something about Uh, the South Korean regulators' findings about the anti-competitive impact of Android dominance on the smart devices market that you just uh, outlined. What was that all about?
1: The KFTC found that um, the AFA applied not, not only to smartphones, but also to other smart devices. And this has already resulted in blocking some major device makers and tech companies to create Android forks for many other types of smart devices. And they also predicted that the AFA will highly likely to prevent other Android OS uh, makers to emerge uh, and make Android forks that could cater to uh, many other types of smart devices. So some of the testimonies that regulator gathered from device makers are how Google blocked Samsung from launching its first smartwatch, called Galaxy Gear One, in 2013 by rejecting the device for failing to meet uh, the compatibility requirements because it was installed with a uh, fork OS and apps that Samsung developed with. Some other 70 uh, app developers. Um, another instance was that LG um, Electronics faced rejection from Google when it was preparing to launch the smart speaker that was installed with the Fork OS and Amazon Alexa apps in 2018.
0: Now it's safe to assume that Google didn't just accept all of this. I mean, how did the search giant argue against those findings? What were some of its arguments?
1: Google strongly disagreed with the KFTC finding. Um, They said the AFA is to ensure compatibility on apps across Android devices. And they especially took issue with the way the South Korean regulator proved anti-competitiveness of Google's dominance in Android, saying that the analytical tools the regulator used is inadequate For this case. And most of all, Google is not happy with the finding because the regulator didn't take into account Apple iOS in defining the mobile OS market. They supported this, uh, saying Google's market share in the OS market for wearable devices is much lower at 5% currently, that it cannot be seen as having. Of dominance in the smart devices market.
0: Now, these arguments are still very much relevant, aren't they? Because the decision is now facing a challenge in court. Uh, how can we expect this legal battle to unfold now?
1: Right. So we will see uh, some interesting legal battle between the regulator and Google to continue in South Korean court. And it's going to be a tough one for the regulator, especially because the way they they proved anti-competitiveness of Google's dominance in conduct is unprecedented. The regulator brought in the concept of innovation market to support the claim that Google's conduct in Android would likely uh, to result in harming innovation in a highly dynamic market for smart devices. Um, This is the concept that is traditionally uh, widely used in merger analysis to assess the future impact of mergers and acquisitions in a highly dynamic market. Um, The regulator applied this approach rather than bringing in the usual way of relevant market definition and hypothetical mono- monopolist tests so this is why the regulator saw uh, expects it will be difficult to uh defend itself in the court because uh, the South Korean court usually requires a very strict uh, judicial requirements for the relevant market definition and the proof of anti competitiveness of this conduct has caused on, this, on a certain market.
0: Woo Yong, thank you for talking to me today. There are so many globally significant stories coming out of South Korea at the moment. We're so lucky uh, to have you and Jenny Lee covering these issues for us. Let's talk again very soon.
1: Thanks a lot, James.
0: Wu Young Lee is an Mlex correspondent based in Seoul and her analysis of the KFTC's Google penalty is ready for you to read. Our website address is as follows: mlexmarketinsight.com. That's m l e x marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for this and other highlights of Mlex's reporting and analysis. And if subscribing to podcasts is your jam, don't forget that you can sign up to the program you're now listening to via iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Please leave a review and help us spread the word. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast covering regulatory affairs. James Paniki with you. And the stars appear to be aligning in the US Congress on the anti-corruption front, with a slate of legislation now being considered by US lawmakers. Perhaps surprisingly, there appears to be broad agreement over the objectives of these pieces of legislation, and luckily for us, our DC-based reporter Robert Thomason has compiled a piece of analysis that spells out what this proposed legislation is all about, and he's also delved into the political atmospherics surrounding the bills. And he joins us now. So, Robert... Uh, To start with, could you perhaps uh, give me an overview of the key anti-corruption laws that the U.S. Congress is trying to pass this term?
2: Okay, the the Congress has put together a good slate of um, anti-corruption bills, Um, good meaning that there are a lot of them and some of them uh, approach vexing problems, problems that they've been thinking about for a while. One of the most important would outlaw the solicitation of a bribe from a U.S. business by a foreign official. At the moment, it's only illegal in the United States for uh, someone to pay the bribe, and people have uh, long said you need to criminalize the demand side of bribery. So, so one of the bills would outlaw the solicitation or acceptance of a bribe by a foreign official. Uh, another bill would make the Global Magnitsky Act permanent. Now, that bill, named after the lawyer who was arrested, tortured, and killed after exposing corruption in Russia, sanctions public officials and their associates who have engaged in substantial corruption. It's due to sunset next year, but this bill would make it permanent. Uh, Another bill would require the State Department, the U.S. State Department, to rank all of the countries of the world according to their uh, control of corruption, according to the level of public corruption that exists within their borders. Uh, And the uh, State Department would put the uh, countries in three tiers, best, need improvement, and bad. And if a country were in the worst tier, Then the State Department would be required to start considering their lawyer. uh, I'm sorry, their leaders for for sanctions of various sorts. Um, There there also, there's also a bill that, uh, or a couple of bills that would uh, put more visa restrictions and add to the visa restrictions on corrupt officials. And that's that's uh, a a quick overview of uh, the slate of bills.
0: And and that is a substantial amount of proposed legislation. Now, any observer of the workings of the U.S. Congress knows very well that passing legislation uh, is easier said than done. So what is the strategy of the sponsors of these pieces of legislation? What are they going to do? How are they going to go about it?
2: Well, what they have done is put together a caucus, an anti kleptocracy caucus um, in the Congress, and they've been very careful and very pointed about making it bipartisan. Um, So that was their first step. Uh, The the second step uh, is uh, they've uh, built on a lot of experience that they've had uh, in the past with anti-corruption bills. Uh, Last Congress, uh, a bill that basically does away with anonymous shell companies uh, by requiring the disclosure of beneficial ownership uh, finally passed after 10 years um, the, the proponents pushed that bill for 10 years and it just barely got through at the end of the Congress so um, so what what they're doing is they're, they're working in a more coordinated fashion right now and also a lot of the ideas are, are not new uh, they're building on what they have done already. Rather than come up with uh, with new ideas that have to be explained over again, and and they have to build a coalition around. So, um, so, so, so those are the two main things. They're also working uh, to to get the bills attached to very important bills. For example, even as we speak, the U.S. House is uh, working on a defense bill, a must-pass defense bill, and some of the uh, some some of the bills. That I mentioned uh, are are part of that and are moving through the Congress right now um, so we'll, we will be covering uh the progress of uh, the bills either as standalone bills or uh, as part of other um, other other legislation
0: mm. now there's as you mentioned earlier on there's a bipartisan element at play here which raises the question of why the sponsors would be emphasizing that the anti-corruption effort should be bipartisan. I mean, there would be nothing, I presume, stopping the uh, Democrats in both the House and the Senate to go it alone if they wanted to.
2: That's, that's right. But it, it, it gets back to that experience that has, has been gained. Uh, um, over the course of the 10 years in which the Beneficial Ownership Bill uh, was, was, was um, actually spinning its wheels most of the time, uh, there, there was a lot of, um, lot of opposition to it. Um, uh, uh, some Republicans thought that it would result in regulatory overburden. There were also some concerns about privacy. And what the anti-corruption proponents learned was um, that if, if, if they bring all sides to the table quicker, then uh, then these issues can get on the table and get addressed and get resolved quicker. So you know, so some of that work had already been done, but you know, they 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 uh, they, they are really embracing it this time. For for example, um, uh, a congressman from Arkansas, French Hill, who is very involved in banking issues, uh, is, is part of the caucus that I talked about, and so he is bringing his expertise uh, in in the banking industry to um, to to, to uh, anti corruption, and also there's just a, a realization. That uh, that that actually anti-corruption is not really a Republican or a Democratic issue. I mean, it, it, uh, the, the bribery affects everybody. So so basically, uh, they're just they're just bringing as many sides to the table as quickly as they can.
0: Now, the thrust of this legislation makes perfect sense to observers of this kind of thing. But why now? I mean, what about the timing? Why is there a push uh, now? All of a sudden
2: well, i th- I think that people were frustrated at, at how long it took to to get legislation through in, in in the past. And a lot of lot of crime and a lot of terrorist financing happened because we did not the United States did not have a beneficial ownership bill and and uh, the terrorists and the crooks could just set up shell companies and pass money through the system. And the bill just just sat there. so 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 the proponents, finally reached a critical mass of uh, saying you know we, we need to to move faster some of, some of the bills that um, are um, being presented right now have been presented in the past and uh, really didn't go much of anywhere so so basically I, th- I, th- I think it comes from like the proponents realizing they need they need to change tact. also um, it's it's become very apparent much more apparent um, that corruption in foreign Countries, you know, like, like Russia, a, a very serious international uh, threat, and you know, it's 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 just not uh, a matter of um, of greedy business people making uh, money unfairly. Even though it includes that, it's much more than that. So all of the effort that came uh, before has has built up in the minds of the proponents, and um, and last year. They, uh, within the last year, they've they've decided to give it a big push.
0: And Robert, given the complexities of the legislative system, what comes next? What are the next steps here?
2: Well, um, as as I mentioned a minute ago, um, some of the bills are in, um, have been presented as amendments to the uh, defense bill. We're watching right now what will happen with that. Also, some of the bills uh, have been referred to the judiciary and or the foreign affairs committees of the um, of, of the chambers. So, so we will watch for them to be marked up. Now, they, they, they um, have good political tailwinds at the moment, in part because of um, what President Biden is doing with his anti-corruption agenda. In December, um, Biden is going to host a summit uh, for democracy and one of the pillars of the summit would be the fight against corruption. So basically, uh, the proponents are going to use uh, the organization that they have uh, congealed and and the spotlight that President Bush has put on uh, the issue of corruption to push this legislation forward.
0: So it sounds like a rather uh, positive uh, outlook for the future of this legislation. Robert, thank you for keeping us across these developments. Let's talk again very soon. Thank you for having me. Robert Thomason is an MLEX reporter with our Washington, D.C. Bureau, and his analysis of this raft of proposed legislation is just a few clicks away from your eyeballs. Just head for mlexmarketinsight.com and unlock the wealth of riches behind the News Hub tab. And that's where we'll have to leave it for now. Thank you for staying with us. Don't forget to join us again next Friday at more or less the same time for the latest news from our team of reporters around the world. I'm James Paniki and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.